This is Peter. And this is Tom. And you're listening to History Teachers Talking Podcasts. All right, this is Peter Zablocki and Thomas Reska, and welcome back to the podcast. Tommy, what do we got? Well, today we are going to look into some of the unsolved crimes in American history. I, there's thousands of them. Um, so we're so just, uh, what, yeah. So what Peter and I did, we picked two major ones, and then each one of us have, I, um, I guess, a mystery one or a surprise one that um, Peter doesn't know which one I chose, and he doesn't, and I don't know which one he chose. And we'll just go around and talk about it and see where the conversation leads. Yep. And obviously, we can't go over every cold case in American history, but... Uh, no, you know, and that's we, not the purpose of this podcast. There's enough no. of those Yeah. Podcasts this is like a survey there. thing. You know, we're just talking. We're just talking. And by the way, Law and How- Order, season 22 starts today. Law and Order SVU, season 22. Look at that. All right. Staples totally coming fitting. back this year. It's a big deal. It's a big deal. Totally fitting. You have no idea what I'm talking about, Peter, but it's okay. Me? No idea. <laughs> no. But I mean, I assume it's totally fitting. I mean, I've probably seen some here and there, but again, not not a big fan, you know. I watched the old stuff. I watched the 1940s film noir and westerns. That's that's my jam. That's the stuff that my dad watches. Good job. <laughs> I know, right? So I think we should start with, you know, the two that we picked, by the way, that we decided to talk about. Uh, one was the Black Dahlia uh, murder um, from 1940s. And the other one was D.B. Cooper. Actually, D.B. Cooper, I'm going to give a little shout out to one of my students, Dan, who uh, said, Mr. Zbaki, I listen to your podcast and you should uh, definitely do something on D.B. Cooper. So here here it is, right? And this is a, um, something that I've done in my class when I used to teach law. And uh, we would do like a thing on a unit on crimes. And actually, did, we did a project on these unsolved crimes, unsolved mysteries. And the ones D.B. Cooper and Black Dye were always ones that students always picked to, to yeah. try to, they try to solve the case, look at the suspects, you know, just make their own claim and things of that nature. And the students always got very interested. So it's obviously... These true crime stories are very popular, even today. Obviously, yes. still today. So let's uh, let's start off with Black Dahlia, and then Black we'll go to D.B. Cooper. From there, we'll um, kind of see what you know you came up with and what I came up with. Right? Sounds good. The Dahlia murder. What's that? Wasn't she called the, like the most beautiful murder or something of that nature? Was yes, that- yes. And actually, the reason why it's called the Black Dahlia was it was made up by the reporters of the time, and it was based off of a movie that was out at the time, um, around this time, and it was the Blue Dahlia, and the movie was about uh, a man who comes back from somewhere, and he finds his wife cheating on him, and then the wife is found dead, and no one really knows who killed the wife, and um, because that's that was not her name. So yes, let's just kind of get into what happened here, right? Morning, January 15th, 1947, um, a woman's body is essentially found severed into two pieces yeah well right? at first it wasn't even a woman's body remember the woman who found it was walking her dog yes and she thought she found a discarded store mannequin that's how like dismembered this corpse yes. was yes and it was in um los angeles this is also important to understand it's in it's in los angeles right outside of um yep los Hollywood. angeles yeah january 1947 like you said this woman's walking her dog and uh, you from far away she's like what is that and then she gets closer and she realizes that actually um, you know, again, not a mannequin, definitely a corpse. So she rushed to a nearby house, telephoned the police, but the corpse was severed into two pieces, right? That's important to note. And not only was it severed in two pieces at the waist, but it was also drained of all drained blood. Of all, yeah. 
right? Uh, skin was super like pale white. And besides the fact that she was, this woman was cut in half, um, she was also cleaned. Yeah, that was, was one washed. thing. Yeah. She was washed with gas, gasoline, they said, like meticulously washed. Well, it's going to destroy any evidence, yeah. Yep. And the face was slashed from corner of her mouth to her ears, kind of creating this effect of like a smile. Yeah, the Glasgow smiles. What it's called. If you guys they get like kind of a mental picture of it, if you remember seeing the Dark Knight, um, the Dark Knight Returns movie, not the Dark Knight, yeah. but the Joker, with Keith Ledger's Joker. Yeah, that's the Dark Knight. And how he's how he had those scars on the sides of his mouth. That's That's what it looked like. Yep. And um, again, we're getting a little graphic here, but lower body position a foot away from the upper body. They said the intestines were tucked away neatly underneath her and the corpse was posed, right? With her hands over her head and elbows bent at right angles and her legs were spread apart. So with that in mind, it wasn't that long before they were able to identify her, actually identify this what became known as the Black Dahlia fairly quickly, but the woman's real name was Elizabeth Short. Short. Yep, and she was, uh, I believe, about twenty-three years old at the time. Yeah, and Elizabeth- she, uh, expiring actress. That's why she was there. She wanted yes. to be famous, and that was kind of what made a lot of this case so ironic, and why um, true crime writers and detectives were so interested in it. Was like, well, she did become famous after her death. She is considered famous now, but she's famous from being murdered, not for being a famous actress. Yes. Anything of that nature, yeah. And the reason they were able to um, find her, um, find out who she was, is because she was actually arrested in 1943. And she was arrested for underage drinking. Mm-hmm. And she was not, so therefore she had a, a record. And they were able to identify her based on her fingerprints. Uh, she was also kind of known as a very promiscuous young lady, um, often dating married men. You know, running away from her house. Uh, she lived in like three various states prior to being murdered. And again, we're, we're kind of simplifying the story because there is a lot to it. Oh, yeah. This, this uh, is, like I said, they've been doing podcasts on this, movies, um, yeah. books. This is a lot. We're just kind of giving the, the basic overview, overview. here. Yeah, overview. yeah. Yeah. The autopsies performed, right, shortly thereafter, actually within a day, I think. And it says that, you know, she was they were able to kind of figure out more or less what she looked like beforehand before they actually managed to get photos of her. But they said the body being cut completely in half was very specifically meticulously done. How to be um, someone who had experience in doing something like that. Absolutely. They said that they moved by transcending the lumbar spine between the second and third lumbar vertebrate, um, severing the intestine, you know, everything was so perfectly done that there was actually very little bruising along the incision yeah. line and she was cut in half. So again, definitely performed by a professional, no question about it. I mean, professional, we mean someone like a problem. They believe it was a doctor or surgeon. Surgeon. Like that nature, yep. Yeah. Yep. And then they also were able to kind of figure out, determine the cause of death. They thought it was actually hemorrhaging right because because of the lacerations to her face and the oh. shock from different blows to head and face and if you get cut in half that's going to kill you too but yeah, that, that, I'm just, right. that without i'm not trying to be of course funny but obviously she was she was uh she was dead the by time time. Cut her in half yeah yes so at that point you know the investigation kind of begins and we're trying to figure out or they're trying to figure out again it's 1947 dna yeah. is really not a thing no no, and um, even if it was, it would have been hard to get it because, like Pete, Pete, you said before, they cover the body. Whoever killed her washed the body with gasoline. 
That's going to yeah. destroy a lot of that stuff. It's going to contaminate the evidence. Really, what they were doing now is probably to get rid of fingerprints. They didn't have Absolutely. fingerprints at the time. And there Absolutely. were a lot of suspects. What I was reading, there was over- A lot um, of suspects. Over yeah. 500 people actually confessed to being the Black Dahlia um, killer over the years. A lot of those people, more than half, weren't even born yet at the time of the murder. So you, yeah. you, you get this in a lot. Like people just confess to it. And the police text that you can be surprised how many people say, oh, they call up and say, my relative was a Black Dahlia killed murderer and stuff like that. And a lot of them are taken seriously, but they do investigate a lot of these. But there are a lot of suspects just at the time. Yeah. And again, the reason why we're talking about it is because it is to this day a cold case. Yeah. Um, it has never really been solved. And it never can be solved because I'm, I read that um, all the remains of the Black Dahlia were, they're not around anymore. They were destroyed unintentionally. So there's really? no, there, yeah, there's no remains of her. They don't have her remains or anything else, any tissue samples in that to test. Um, so they can never, even if somehow they get some DNA or something pops up, they have nothing to test it against. So even even a I mean, you could see pictures of it. You could Google a picture. Yeah, the, but even the but they don't have the actual yeah. DNA itself. Yeah. Initially, you know, the initial investigation um, that begins shortly thereafter actually starts about a week or so afterwards after the body is discovered. There is a suspicious Manila envelope, right, that is discovered mm-hmm. by U.S. Postal Service worker. But they also got a phone call, right, saying that they did get I, a phone call. The examiner the, I, got a phone I, call. Yeah, I'm the murderer of the Black Dahlia, and you'll be hearing from me soon. Yes, and that was the phone call made that was made to the Los Angeles Examiner. Yes, yes. and then that couple of days later, there is a suspicious Manila envelope that is uh, discovered by a postal worker. It is actually addressed to the Los Angeles Examiner, and the words inside are cut out and pasted from newspaper clippings. So again, very difficult to figure out um, who or what. But it did say, "Here is Dahlia's belongings. Letter to follow," and it did contain. Her birth certificate, business cards, photographs, names, um, things of that nature, a dress book, and actually dress book, there was kind of the beginning of the investigation because they're sort of going through all the people that were in the address book. The one thing I want to mention that was kind of really messed up is how the reporters, some of the initial reporters found out about the murder, like with the same day that it happened, Um, obviously, because, you know, this became news, everyone kind of went to the scene. But because they're able to identify her name fairly quickly because of her prior arrest record, so many reporters, the one in particular, actually called her mother mm-hmm. in a different state. Did you hear this? I remember hearing it. That's how she found out about it, right? Yeah, but the way she, he went about it was he actually told the mother that her daughter, Elizabeth, had just won a beauty pageant. And he started asking all kinds of questions about Elizabeth. Because he just wanted to get as much information out of the mother as possible to have the best story. And he went on for like 15 minutes. And then yeah, after really. he had all the information he wanted, he's like, oh, by, by the way, your, your daughter's actually been found, you know, murdered. Not, yeah, um, not just murdered, but mutilated. Mutilated. And that's, yeah, I was just, what a messed up. Well, no, this isn't, I'm not defending it, but this is in the 40s. They're just trying to get this yeah. story. So they try to beat people out, getting any other information. They knew how hungry people were. You know, the sensationalism right, yeah. of the time. And it became like a craze. This story became such a just huge publicity and publicized because of the graphic nature of the crime and everything like that. And it just that's one reason why it just it just exploded. And there's been movies based on it. even today. I mean, people know it's it, it's a well you mentioned a Black Dahlia. People at least think, oh, that sounds familiar. What was that again? You know, like they yeah. they're somewhat aware of it. Yeah. And after the examiner. Um, the packet was found. So, and, and after the phone call, so clearly there's somebody out there that is that is doing this, that is contacting the media. 
um, a handbag and a shoe, one shoe, are found on top of a garbage can in an alley very close to where the body was found. And they were discovered by, you know, recovered by police. And they were also wiped clean with gasoline. Uh, again, no fingerprints, but they were identified as Elizabeth Short's, um, you know, belongings. Did you read about the, the weird suicide note? I did see something about a suicide note. Yeah. Yeah. So then they found uh, like clothes, nicely tucked, tucked away clothes. Yeah. yeah. Just kind of sitting on a beach. You had shoes and nicely, you know, folded pants on top of it and a shirt. Um, just randomly sitting, you know, at the ocean's edge. And there's a note inside the shoe that said, to whom it may concern, I have waited for the police to capture me for the Black Dahlia killing, but have not. I'm too much of a coward to turn myself in. So this is the best way out for me. You know, the idea of like, I'm going to, some guy, somebody jumped in the ocean, but nothing was ever discovered after that. No one really knew what was going on with regards to that. So what are some, what are some, uh, some suspects here, Tom. Well, yeah, there are a whole number of suspects. You have um, there's one suspect that by the name of um, he was actually a publisher in Times Magazine, Norman Chandler, and um, mm-hmm. a lot of a lot of um, authors are claimed that who got research the case claim that he actually impregnated her, and that's why he killed her. Mm-hmm. But again, he doesn't really have the knowledge. The one person that always sticks out, and a lot of my students over the years picked as the Black Dahlia murder was a man by the name of um, George Hodel Jr. He was a suspect in, in her murder, and he actually was a physician or had some knowledge of that. A lot of the homicide detectives at the time believed that he um, also was the murderer. Um, he was suspected of killing people before this and after this. Um, supposedly, yeah. they um, heard him say, well, he told them, like, well, even if I did kill her, you could never prove it. Yes, it, it would be impossible. And because he said the only, he actually said it was he's like recorded and heard yeah, saying, saying because my my uh, secretary knew it, but I killed her too or something like yeah. that. Well, his secretary uh, Ruth Spaulding actually, yeah, supposedly she. The rumors are like she somehow found some evidence or overheard him talking about killing the black guy or killing Elizabeth Short. So when he kills her, and then he says, yeah, the only and he's he's recorded and saying it's the only way you the only person that knew I killed her or could prove I could kill her was my secretary, and I took care of that. I took care of her. Like, well, yeah. that's kind of weird. He was never charged with any of these. Um, he was not a good person. He was accused of um, killing other uh, before this. Uh, he was accused he also of made raping, a lot of illegal... raping his own daughter. Like, he yes, was not he a, was uh, accused of raping his daughter. And then he uh, He made fled the country of... several times, yeah, just to get away. Yep. He had to escape the country, I'll say, yeah. He, and he and went to he the Philippines. And he also made a lot of, like, back alley abortions. And, and they said that, like, he, again, very much people believe that this guy did it. I yeah. mean, and even his son came. His son became a detective um, that he did years it, yeah. later, and he came out and he goes, "Look, I, I'm, my my father did this." Like, I and this is and again, if you look at the evidence, and he's been long gone, this guy. But if you look at the evidence, I mean, it he could it definitely have done it. Could he? And like I said, he, he was a surgeon. It, I mean, he had that he skill. Why is he saying talking about? He was obsessed with the case. You don't joke that you killed your secretary because she could prove that you killed the black guy. That's just something, and especially if you're a suspect. It's yeah. almost like he was trying to, and he did, police said he was taunting them all the time too. Because he's like, there's no way you can prove it. You can't prove it. And they knew that. There was no way they could bring this evidence. It would be really hard. It's all, it was all circumstantial evidence. Well, you're, you killed her because you have the knowledge to do it. But you know how many other people have the knowledge to cut a, cut a corpse in half in LA? Yeah. You know, any surgeon there would have that type of knowledge, that type of skill. So you couldn't just say it was him, you know. You have to. There was more evidence. I know he was seen with her also. 
there was some evidence that they had some sort of relationship prior. Because again, yes. she wanted to get famous and not blaming her at all, but she wanted famous. She wanted money. This, he was, he had, he had money. He was not wealthy, wealthy, but he was a doctor. So he had money at the time. He, he was put together. He knew he had connections. If you look at the files, the police files, again, cold case, um, he is the prime suspect. They just yeah. couldn't quite pin it on him. So it remains but unsolved. Yeah, so it remains unsolved, right? This is your, this, I guess this is our first unsolved case of tonight's podcast. Yeah, so you know, Which, you know, you research it yourselves and make up your own conclusions. Because even though it might seem like George um, Hordell Jr. did it. There are a bunch of other people. You have Jeff Connors, Mark Hansen, uh, yes. another doctor, Francis E. Sweeney. You have Woody Guntry, Buddy Siegel. Some people are even saying um, the, the father or George Hordell Sr. was a killer. Yes. So you have all of some of his friends. There's a guy by the name of uh, Fred uh, Fred Sexton, right? Yeah, Fred Sexton. Yeah, yeah. He was one of Hordell's friends. That He was the one that, that killed him because he was jealous of the relationship that he had with George, that she had with George. And then goes on and on. And these aren't any people that confessed. These were suspects that the cops were looking into. Yeah. So, and, and there's credible evidence for each one. That's what makes it so crazy too. Yeah. So George Hordell Jr. kind of sticks out a lot. And I, you can kind of, oh, yeah, he did it. But if you really research some of these others, you're like, hey, they could have done it too. Like it's, yeah. it, it will never be solved. And and that's very sad when you think about that. This, you know, Elizabeth Short, this poor woman, justice will really not be served for her in this world. What is it with us and these gruesome things, man? So DB Cooper is definitely a lighter case. Yeah, to an extent. Right. I mean, as far as like he's, it's actually glorified a lot more. Like, that's, all right, that's you want to kind of get us? You want to get us started? That's what's crazy a lot a with uh, DB Cooper. Well, the DB Cooper case is an interesting case. It's the only um, unsolved hijacking in American history. And what basically took place, some of you guys probably heard of this before, but there was a um, Boeing 727 aircraft was hijacked between Portland and Seattle on the afternoon of November 24th, 1971. And a man purchased an airline ticket and the alias was um, Dan Cooper. That was not his real name. And yep. it was actually a news miscommunication. Um, and that's how the popular lore was as D.B. Cooper. That's kind of like the press made that up. That wasn't his name. It's not the name he gave to the um and there actually airport. was some guy named db cooper in the yeah, he got arrested. Like, yeah. arrested and he, yeah. he kind of fit the profile like he looked at the guy too but he he was never in that area but yeah his name was db cooper yeah i remember <laughs> that um and more or less this was very different now there was you could actually just walk up to a terminal like buy a ticket and get on a plane it, yeah. it, it's not like now when you're waiting there and you have to go to all the security it was very very different it's like different. 20 bucks to buy the plane ticket it's 1971 yeah, yeah you just get yeah, on he, it yeah he gave a 20 dollar cash bill and hopped on a plane and with a the, bomb with a bomb supposedly, supposedly. A, bomb. a lot of people still don't even think the bomb was real yeah because he ne they never actually saw the bomb um well some something said she well, saw the, the one saw wires said, yeah. but yeah but um, he just gives a note to the stewardess saying i have a bomb and if you don't want me to blow up this plane you're going to bring me two hundred thousand dollars which would have been about like 1.2 million dollars today Mm -hmm. And um, he gets on this plane, and well, he said uh, he wants I want two hundred dollars. So they're ready yes. in the air, and he's like, "All right." Well, first of all, he hands her this like business card because he sits towards the back. And at first, she's like, "Yeah, this guy's hitting on me," and she puts this business card into her purse or whatever. It was. Yeah, she's looking at later on. Yeah, and then he's like, uh, "You might want to look at that lady." So then she takes it out again, and that's where it said like two hundred dollars, and he wants 
four parachutes, two primary and two reserves, and a fuel truck standing by in Seattle to refuel the aircraft upon arrival. Mm -hmm. Like, and we don't actually know exactly how it was said because he took it. He back. then took that note back he from her. Back, yep, yeah, to not leave any evidence. So yeah, so they're in the air, and this is what he wants, and and he gets know, it. They do wind up. Yeah. yeah, he gets it. They wind up landing. In what Seattle. they do first is something that they do. Sorry to cut you off here. But it's yeah, go ahead. Go. It's the same thing that when we talked about the um, Limburg baby case. They write down the serial numbers. There's unmarked bills, but they write down the serial number on each and every bill, so they know if it's ever spent, they'll be able to try to trace mm -hmm. it. So that's just something that we'll get back to as we talk about this. Yeah. So, so go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, they give him like ten thousand unmarked twenty dollar bills, essentially, as you mentioned, right? And he. Um, and they also might, they photograph and microfilm photographs of each, each of them. So they kind of know the serial numbers. That's how they did it. So needless to say, he gets the money. Everything's brought on board. He, he lets it, the plane. Well, he lands. lets all the people go. He lets all the people go, but the pilot and a couple crew members. Yes. And then they take the plane back up and they believe he ha probably had some knowledge because he has the plane go to, um, 10,000 feet. Slow down yeah. to a certain speed, basically the lowest and the slowest it can go and still sit, stay in the air. And he has them put the um, flaps up, which will also slow the plane up. Yeah. And so as much as possible. And then he puts on the parachute and he jumps. And they did not know he jumped at first. Um, he orders well, them all to go into the, the cabin. Yeah. 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 Because he went in the back. And that's also why they figured he had to have known a lot about just airplanes and, and stuff because not only was he very specific um to the crew like i want you like you said fly at this you know uh height and everything else but he picked a, a boeing 727 that had like a back air stair opening like a little staircase would open from the back tail of the plane and that staircase could only be opened from the back of the plane it could not be opened at the time from the cockpit so like you said in a, like you said he went in the back but there's there's that's where the because there's so many conspiracy theories about this, and some things that are so weird because of the parachutes themselves, right? Yeah, and that's because he was given four parachutes, and actually one of those parachutes by accident was was a dummy. Was, was a dummy, yeah, yeah, fake, yeah. And we say that it was an accident. I, I think I believe that because by asking for four, he made it sound as if he was going to take some hostages you know what yes, i mean so that's like, what they were worried about yeah forcing other people so, out of the plane with them exactly which is why they wouldn't mess with it on purpose that's why that was his way of ensuring that he would get four good ones but he picks the oldest parachute out of the four and then he takes the dummy as his reserve parachute and many other people now and even then when the again still cold case we have no idea who this guy is they're kind of surprised like why would he take if he knows what he's doing right a dummy parachute that's not a real parachute and the oldest one of the bunch, which is a little odd. But yeah, so he he jumps out and that's kind of where the investigation and the cold case really starts for us, I guess. Well, he so jumps out of the plane and most FBI people believe that he never survived the jump. It was too high of a jump. He would have to be experienced to do that. And what they also say is he the only way he could have survived if, if – is if he landed on the ground, like if he landed in the trees and then the ground, if he landed in the water, it was a cold night. It's Washington. So he would have froze to death. Like there's no way if he lands in the water, he's dead. Yeah. They said it, it was, I mean, it was January, it, wasn't it? Yeah. It was January. It was free cold. It was raining. So it wasn't the ideal. It was like a storm too. It wasn't ideal to be jumping out of a plane. 
Yeah. But um, if he lands in anywhere in the water, even like a swampy area or whatever, he, he's dead. There's no way he survives that because he wasn't wearing, he was wearing, you know, a suit and tie. He wasn't, he wasn't wearing like warm weather clothing to survive. But if, but jumping out of the plane, high altitude, if he, they said he probably would have got stuck in a tree or something of that nature mm-hmm. and probably died that way. They don't think he actually survives the jump. Yeah. And so, actually there's a massive manhunt, but they don't find him for years. They don't find him. There's not even yeah. any clues about him for years i mean a lot of people start calling in just like with the black dahlia like hey i'm db cooper or my uncle's db cooper and also because a lot of newspapers are like given a reward money you know like if yeah. you know anything but they never find it but then things start kind of popping up right it really, it really so, heats up in um, 1980 february yeah. of 1980 a um, young boy is digging he's just like playing around in the mud by the columbia river mm-hmm. and he finds a bunch of these bills not all of them, but he finds a couple thousand dollars worth of yeah. these rotted bills and he brings them out to his mom. His mom calls the police. The police come and because you just find random money, you're supposed to report it to the police just in case that happens for any of you out there. Yeah. And um, they kind of trace it. Like, oh my God, this was the money that was given to D.B. Cooper. Yep. So again, and this it was, is I mean, it's already, and they're like kind of, obviously the, the money's decomposing and all that stuff and yeah, it was, it's, rotted, brown, yeah. it's rotted but they do you're right they do say that it's him which kind of at least puts it in puts him in that vicinity where they thought he would have jumped out they're like all right it's not exactly where we thought he jumped out but it's near where we thought he might have jumped out it's in that range but, of where the parachute could have taken him yes but then but they're like well, why was it buried it all the money yeah. yeah why was it buried too right that was a big one right and then if some people thought that <laughs> Because of when they dug it out and the boy dug it out, the investigators speculated that it was like a 1980 eruption of Mount St. Helens that might have um, obliterated any other remaining clues. And maybe there was more uh, money or more things that were near there that were just simply destroyed. Destroyed, but washed th- away forever, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and they never they never found any more money. That was pretty much it. Yeah, the other thing they did, go ahead. Yeah, go, no, you go first. Well, the other thing I want to talk about that in um, 2007, the case gets a lot of publicity again, because they're able to find some partial DNA. I suppose that's what they say at first from um, samples found on um, on his on his um, on his tie. Yeah, they did find samples on his tie in 2001. They done three organic um, samples, although they couldn't prove it was him or from someone else who touched it over the years. Um, So it was really impossible. What they do find on it. Which makes it really interesting what a lot of people have jumped on is we found a lot of these like metals. And one of the time one of the metals is like an um, titanium alloy. And they said that in the nineteen seventies, you don't really see things using of that. If this was ni- if this was two thousand ten, it could be from a bunch of different things, a bunch of different electronics. And nineteen seventies, not so much, especially this type, um, with the other things that were kind of combined in it. And they the only ones that was using that largely in the nineteen seventies was um, Boeing was working on our supersonic um, transport development. Like that's mm-hmm. supersonic jets, basically. And so they're really thinking that Cooper must have been a Boeing employee, that he must have worked for the company um, some way, somehow. That's how he had to have these pieces of titanium, uh, like shards on his tie. So he had to come in contact with this. It does make sense. He would have a bit more knowledge about the airplanes, a bit more knowledge about how things work. So it, it just adds to that theory that he just was someone that knew the company that worked for, worked for Boeing. Yep. So let's look at some of these suspects, right? Again, between 1971 and 2016, right? It was over a thousand serious suspects. Um, and again, they still have not. I think the case is closed now. I think it yeah, they actually the FBI closed the case. So like, we're not going to find this guy. He, if he was, 
if he did survive, <clears throat> he's dead now. So yeah. they, um, that's it. It is a close case. Obviously, if they get any new information, it can open it, but they're not actively pursuing DB Cooper anymore. Yeah. 2016, I think they stopped. Mm-hmm. So uh, there's a few suspects, right? The first one, um, and I think in 2003, remember there was the Kenneth Christensen or Christian, I think Christensen, that was the yeah. name, where um, a guy, Lyle Christensen, who was watching a documentary actually on Cooper, and he's like, well, you know, I think, I think this might have been my brother. Um, and, and his brother, obviously, he passed away years before that. I think in 1994, his brother died. But he goes, I think it was my brother that, that was D.B. Cooper. And they, you know, they started investigating and they realized that his brother, um, Kenneth, was enlisted in the U.S. Army in 1944. He was trained as a paratrooper. Um, he made a, a bunch of jumps as a paratrooper. He smoked, which the hijacker did as well. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the Boats from Evergreen Podcasts. I interview political leaders and influencers, folks like award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and conservative columnist Bill Kristol about the choices they confront when failure is not an option. I won't agree with everyone I talk to, but I respect anyone who believes in something enough to risk everything for it. Because history belongs to those willing to burn the boats. Episodes are out every other week wherever you get your podcasts. Um, he loved bourbon, which is what Cooper uh, ordered while he got on a plane. He was left-handed, which evidence photos of uh, Cooper's black tie, right, show the tie clip applied on the left side, suggesting that Cooper was also left-handed. Um, and also, like, the photos kind of fit, more or less, uh, photos of Christensen kind of fit the hijacker's appearance. And then there's the whole idea of, well, he also purchased a house out of nowhere shortly after um, like 1971 and people are like, where'd you get the money for that? Then when he was dying of cancer in 94, he told his brother, like, there's something you should know, but I just cannot tell you, you know, and he yeah, said that, that before he passed idea. away. And then they discovered that he had all these like gold coins and valuable stamp collections, hide like hidden. Then he had over $200,000 in bank accounts and people are like, all right, like this is kind of, maybe this really was the guy. Obviously when they started investigating it, there's doubt, which is why it's still a cold case. And essentially what they said is that he, the Christensen guy did not pay for his house in cash in 71. He actually had a 17 year, you know, year old mortgage. Um, and also he sold a bunch of his land. They said in the mid nineties before his death, which is how he accumulated all that money. So FBI says that he technically is not the prime suspect. Not the prime suspect. Yeah. Yeah. Who else? Do you have to- anybody else? There's a bunch of other people. I mean, we can go on and on on the people, but I just want to talk about a little bit with Cooper is the fact that he's become such this like popular culture phenomenon. A lot of the movies, I know um, the show Prison Break, if you've watched that show, they actually, one of the guys in the show says he's D.B. Cooper. They actually reveal him as D.B. Cooper in the show, that he was D.B. Cooper at one point. The Blacklist talks about him. Um, There was that movie with, um, who was that guy? I forgot his name. He was, he's married to, uh, I can't remember her name now either. I think in the place. That's right. Drax or whatever. I think his name's like Drax, Dax, something like that. Not Drax. That's the Guardians of the Galaxy guy. But that movie without a paddle talks about him. Yeah. Uh, they, they're looking for it. They've done <laughs> episodes of, um, remember that show, Drunk, Drunk History? 
Yep. There's one on that. Like it, he's, it's become a pop culture phenomenon. And a lot of the people who write these books about D.B. Cooper, they, they all say he survived. They love the fact they think he survived. He took his money, whatever. He was able to like, some of it fell out. That's what the ones that kid found. And he just went to like Mexico or some tropical island. He's just chilling. And they like the fact that this guy, you know, hijacked this plane. He didn't hurt anybody. So that's why he kind of gets glorified. If he would have killed yeah. anybody, it would have been much different. But he lets everybody go. He just takes his money. And, you know, he had a plan. He was dedicated to his plan, that's what they say. And he jumps out of the plane and he just lives and a lot, lives a happy life after that. And there were um, copycats, people who tried yes. to do the same thing, and but they wound up getting caught. Um, it's, it's not exactly as, as easy as uh, Cooper made it seem, basically. Yeah. I mean, uh, one of the more famous ones was Richard Floyd McCoy Jr. Yeah. Martin, Martin McNally was another one. Yeah. Um, McCoy actually... They said he staged the most known because he was successful until he was caught, right? Yeah. Boarded uh, United Airlines flight uh, in 1972, so a year afterwards. Um, he picked the same kind of Boeing with the you know, stairs. It was a total copycat, yeah. Good, complete like, copycat. And it was Denver, Colorado. And then he did the same. It, literally, everything's the same. Um, he had basically what resembled to be a hand grenade, um, unloaded handgun, so on and so forth. He demanded $500. He got the $500. Everything is exactly the same. And then he jumps out and parachutes out. And then um, he, he, except he gets caught, right? He, uh, he left behind handwritten hijacking instructions and his fingerprints were all over it. Um, so that was, that was, that's where he messed up. He and caught, they, yeah. they got him like two days later, you know, and that's he had all the money with him. That's why they really believe that Cooper didn't survive. They're like, there's no way he would have been able to gather. They were searching that whole area. That was, it's all wooded area. So he would have had, or they say he had to have someone helping him. Someone waiting yes. for him somewhere there that could get him out of there and then wait for it. Also help him to hide the money because there was federal agents all in that area looking for anyone in the woods and they never find anything until that kid finds the money in 1980. Yep. Absolutely. So I don't know. What do you think about that? Pete? you think that this guy, so you think DB Cooper survived or what? It's it very 15 unlikely. Degrees, fifteen degrees. Yeah, it's like 10, very unlikely. Feet. I don't I mean, know. Like very unlikely too. Like massive wind chill. So I'm sure. I'm sure my student's gonna uh, have a bone to pick with me on this one. It's gonna be a discussion in class. But yeah, I, uh, <laughs> I don't, I don't, I don't know. I really don't know. I can't tell. What do you think? You think he survived? I, I don't think so. Unless he had help, I don't think he survived. Yeah. Well, that's that was one of the things they said. Maybe he did have help. That was. Yeah, I mean, and again, there's so much more complexity so much, to this. If he had help, that kind of changes some of the story. But then again, how does that guy know he's gonna he's gonna land where he lands? Yeah. So who knows? But then they but, said someone saw a guy hitchhiking. I mean, again, there's so yeah, many that, yeah, multitude. Yeah, that could have been yeah, him, but of options. Because I know one story with oh he he hid like um he hid like winter clothing in the woods. But there's no way to jump out of a plane and land exactly in the middle of the night and land. Yeah especially in the set and then exactly where you hit a bunch of clothes like that's really stretching it i think the bounds of reality but i never jumped so, out of a plane so who knows yeah i know right i know so let's kind of talk about the ones that uh that we kind of went on our own run rogue a little bit no you go, so, first. go yeah i mean I, I couldn't pick i really couldn't but i mean there's a few cold cases that i think that would be relevant to today um the first one is kind of felt you we don't know it when we do it but I don't know about you, but I get really annoyed when I try to open like a medicine bottle that has like oh, this tamper resistant packaging. Yeah, the Tylenol murders of you know just of 1982. That's what it, that was one of my things that I kind of picked out because well, it was which never one did solved. you pick out? Did you pick that one or a different one? 
I picked that one. I did. Well, I mean, I picked another one. Too, so now we're screwed. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, I picked another one. I picked another one as well. So we're good. Okay. But so let's oh, perfect. Let's do this, right? So Tylenol, 1982. I mean, this is super freaky. This is the one that I picked out because this is. Um, I'm sure you picked it out too. It's one I always used to tell the students that kind of freaked me out the most. Yeah. I mean, they all they're all freaky. But when you hear this one, and, it, and it's this changed American culture. Um, more than American consumerism is yeah. the reason it's what it is today. The reason you have those hard times with those tops. Yeah. So like if you talk about it, think about this. It. this is yes. why. Yeah. So right now, if you get like Advil or Tylenol, there is a seal of plastic wrap that's nice. really, really on there. Then you get that off, which is hard to take apart. You're right. Then once you to get that off, you have to do that whole like squeeze and pop up cap. Mm-hmm. Right. Then once you do that, um, then you have the foil that is, literally designed not to be able to tear neatly and then when you finally get that you have that whole wisp of cotton in there and you're like geez i'm just trying to get but it's also the tunnel itself because now they're called caplets which is our solid what they used to be um when this killing was taking place yeah capsules you could actually pull them apart and that's what they would do. Sometimes you still see, I guess, if you get medication from a from a pharmacy, I guess they're still like that. You can actually pull them apart and dump the powder, the medicine, whatever it is, out. And that's what this individual was doing. He was going to the stores. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, so what happened? Go ahead. He was going to these stores in the Chicago area in 1982, and he's taking the Tylenol capsules out of – off the shelves. He's opening them up. He's taking some of the pills out, and he's emptying out the Tylenol, and he's filling the – He's filling them back up with cyanide and he's putting them back on the shelf. Yes. People are coming. People In are random buying. places. Random so they, they, they weren't able to figure out if it was yeah. one batch. No, he's just randomly buying yeah. things and putting them back on the shelf. Yeah. And a lot of people thought maybe this is like a manfa- manufacturing error. But they figure out pretty soon that it's not someone probably working the factories. Actually. It's someone actually doing this in like the stores. Mm-hmm. And it was like a huge thing because what happened was these people are dying and they don't know why they're dying because they're not checking for cyanide. And then actually some firefighters were like, you know what? They all, they go to this one place where this young girl died. And the parents are like, well, she was complaining of a headache. I gave her a towel. I went to bed and she was, you know, I woke up the next morning and she wasn't up. She was, you know, she passed away. And they kind of figured out that the only thing they all had in common was that they all took extra strength uh-huh. Tylenol at some point. Within, I mean, this was from like March, April um, of uh, 1980, uh, 1982. Yeah. This is the year we were born. Uh-huh. Yeah. Nuts. And um, so what's going on is they put it all together and they take this, they take the town off from these people's houses and they have no connection to each other whatsoever other than the fact they live in Chicago. Yes. And then they are, some are 31 years old, 30, uh, 35 years old, 19, 27, mm-hmm. uh, some of them are younger than that. And um, they find these capsules and they, they test the capsules and some of them still, some of them have sign in it. So that's when and then the news gets out and Johnson & Johnson is freaking out because you know this is this is going to destroy their company plus they don't want people to die either um right. so they start actually warning people they actually say do not use our products if you have our product throw it out they're telling people to do this and they're halting yeah. production on it because they you don't said they lost like 265 million yeah because they, it's the worried bat. about the uh the poisoning risk of this yeah but they also said that you know technically johnson and johnson got a lot of credibility from this because of the way they handled it um, they were, didn't try to defend it. They were very open with the public and they're like, no, throw our stuff out and it, it will replace it as well. So yeah, that'll yeah, really, yeah, we'll replace it for free when we come up with something. Yeah. Like I mean, so, and it, like you said, they went from capsules to having solid pills. 
And there was ongoing investigations with regards to this. Uh, again, the person was never found. And just like with the other ones, there's copycats. Yeah, But people, I mean, there's I mean, some suspects. There's one guy, James William Lewis. Yeah. I don't know if you... I saw that one. The main thing with him was, yeah, he he sent a, he sent a letter to Johnson Johnson saying, I'll stop killing people if you give, if me, you one give me a million dollars. And um, they were able to, he left fingerprints. Fingerprints. Like, if you mail something. I know. You I, know, know, I like, get it. Wear gloves. I mean, I guess I'm telling people <laughs> how to get away with crime. But like, I don't think that, that's not, that's not, isn't that like common, like, if you're going to do something, you, like, you don't want to get like, caught, like, it's common. So, but then again, people who are doing this aren't in the right, their right minds anyway. Yeah. So they're not going to think of like wearing gloves or something like that. And I, I don't know. It just doesn't make any sense how they think they're not going to get caught if you do something like that. Yeah. Like, they probably, he put, the guy probably put his own return address on there too. Like, I mean, he was convicted, right? He convicted him of extortion. Yeah. Uh, he later winds up serving 13 years uh, sentence in prison. He gets paroled in 1995. But there's a lot of court documents that were released um, later on, like 2009, 2010, that they're saying that the Department of Justice uh, investigators actually concluded that it was him yeah, he did do that it. was responsible they for this poisoning. To charge him. They just exactly. They just didn't have enough evidence to charge him. So, again, it's considered a cold case. But well, yeah, they concluded that. But the issue was him and his wife did submit DNA samples later on and fingerprints, and it doesn't match some of the other ones that they have. So he always said the FBI plays fair. I have nothing to worry about. So there's a lot of other people. There's another one. Um, Roger Arnold was identified. Mm-hmm. He was eventually clear of the killings, but um, because he had so much media intention, he actually had a um, mental breakdown, nervous breakdown. Because people like the news kept saying, "Hey, are you this Tylenol killer? Are you this? Are you that?" Um, so he actually like blamed it on a um, bar owner, uh, Marty yeah. Sinclair, in the summer of 1863, and then Arnold shot and killed him. <laughs> like they just. Killed each other. Well, he got honor shot and killed him. At one point, remember the FBI actually requested DNA samples from the Unabomber? Yeah, he was on there, but then they concluded he had nothing to do with it. The new yeah. thing about the Unabomber, that can be another podcast, right? Ted Kaczynski, is he yeah. um, he admitted to stuff. Like, if you thought he, they thought he might have been the Zodiac killer too, they asked him that. He's like, no. Yeah. He's like, I tell you, because he was just so out there. He yeah. was more against the government than anything else. Uh, but he had a bunch of people. And actually, there was other deaths again later on. In the late 80s also. Yeah, copycats started it again, right? In uh, 86. And that's like, oh, what's going on here? And that's when they um, changed from the caplets, the cap, the capsules to the caplets Capsule. that they have today, which yeah. are tamper-proof. Um, yeah. They're they're like they're just like a solid, more or less. Yeah, the ones oh. in the late 80s was in the New York City area, and it was Excedrin actually also in Washington State. This is so scary. That you could just go. Well, I guess it, you really can't this day and age. I guess it does. Yeah, but just right. imagine then, like you taking the medicine and trying to make yourself feel better in some way, and you tr- you don't even think about it. Think of how many like Tylenol is. You don't even call aspirin. You call it Tylenol. You know, I need to take a Tylenol. Yeah. I need to take that. And you have a headache. You have body aches or something like that. You 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 know take one of these little painkillers, and you're 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 killing yourself because you're taking cyanide. And once yeah. that once you swallow, that's it. There's nothing. That's it. And think about the parents yeah. who gave that to their to their kid, their child. You know, because he had a headache. Yeah. It's just, okay. it's a sad because okay. this individual decides to do this. And what type of individual does it? You have to be sick in the head, obviously. And I always wonder too, like how no one saw it. Like no one saw someone sitting there. I guess you can be quick with it, but how quick can you really be? Emptying out capsules and putting cyanide in it. That's just nuts. But that, that's what always freaked me out because it's one of those things. It was it's a silent killer. You know? Yeah. But those silent killers that just kind of sneak up out of nowhere. Those, those those are just because you never know who can have it. It's just so random. 
like the, the everyone who died it was just random there's no connection there's no real reason all they it happened by them simply taking a Tylenol so I had one other one that I I was kind of I was torn again I, you and I both obviously have little kids but what and I never really thought of this even though I've gotten so many Amber alerts Amber Hagerman yes yes yes, I, yes um, that's, a, that's a tough case that's a tough case yeah really but for case. those of us that ever get you know, the Amber Alert on your phone, just so you know that the Amber Alert system is named in her That's honor. Right, yeah. um, Amber Hagerman, January 13th, 1996. She was nine years old and her and her a little brother who was five. They're riding their bikes down the street from the grandparents. They rode literally two blocks down. An empty parking lot. Just riding. Just yes. Riding bike. Yeah, they were in an empty parking lot. And the five-year-old's like, well, I want to go back home. So he came back home and his parents and the grandparents were like, where's your sister? Go get your sister. And he's like, oh, she wanted to stick around. Like, no, go get her. So then he rode his bike back and realized she wasn't there, but the bike was there. Yeah. Um, so he quickly rode back and said, she's not there, but her bike's there. So the parents freaked out and they jumped in a car and they drove there. And when the time they got there, there was already a police officer there. And they're like, oh, this isn't good. And apparently there a, a neighbor. Yeah, there's an old saw, man. Yep. He was like in his 80s, right? late yep. 70s early 80s and he just saw a guy at what was it a black pickup truck yeah my memory um a black pickup truck forcing her in the car like she was yelling yeah saying let me go let me go and this guy forcing the car and how was he he was the only witness from the crime and he's like listen i didn't really get a good look he's i'm yeah he's an old old man bad eyes but he heard it because the screams are so loud saw what was going on so he identifies the best as he can and then a few days later unfortunately they find amber Ember's body in yeah, the um, four in a days ditch, later. In a ditch. Yeah. And, and it um, was in the reason I'm sorry to cut you off there, Pete. Yeah. One reason why it becomes an Ember alert is because they're really, they didn't really block things off. They didn't really, they looked for her, but they didn't like do like a, a wide search. They didn't close down the streets. They didn't have yeah. other people looking. They didn't broadcast it. The idea is today when they have these Ember alerts is that they can get the picture out. They can have local law enforcement be aware of it because a lot of them weren't aware of it if they weren't you know right there and the idea is then it can kind of form like a noose lack of a better term around that area and make it small and smaller before the guy gets out like if they didn't say hey look they didn't put out a like a police report or a watch to say let's look out for this black jeep you know black yeah. pickup truck if they otherwise what they, they would be stopping every black pickup truck like that's it that's that's probable cause they're going to stop every black pickup truck and maybe they would have found her still alive that's the idea. Yep. They think that she was alive for a while before he killed her um, based on the autopsy reports. Yeah. You know, also, again, it became a cold case. I mean, the one thing that they're positive about is that um, she was abducted and killed by a stranger. I mean, that was ultimately what they came up with that much. But there's some statistics that said, actually, it's less common than you think just being abducted by a stranger um, between 2010 and 2019. Uh, fewer than 350 people under the age of 21 were abducted by strangers. And obviously, that's still a lot of abductions. But m hundreds of thousands of kids go missing each year, right? And yeah. in more than 90%, 95% of those cases, the missing child ran away or is it's somebody that's not a stranger that's involved. The family members. A lot of times, it's the father, mother, whatever. Father or mother who doesn't have custody yeah. comes in and takes a child. That's that's most of what you see with the with the amber alerts today but you still have these other ones oh it's they really have very very few suspects there's one suspect i can't remember um he, he does have a black pickup truck i forget what else but he also works in a junkyard and the big thing with him was that he was um being suspected of it and the cops were coming they caught him burning 
clothes in a fire where they came into like interrogate him. And yeah. but they got there too late, so they wasn't sure. But he's like, "Oh no, these are just clothes I found. I was just decided to, you know, they were in a briefcase with a bunch of other clothes that someone dumped, and I was just burning them because I wanted to keep the briefcase or whatever, like the suitcase." He did have some child molestation charges, so he definitely fits that profile. I can't remember his name. I'm sorry. We need to start doing some happy ones, man. Yeah, well, you're the one that picked this one. I picked a town long. And that's not happy either, but. Well, I was going to say that one people. But you can't can't get that now. Like now you're going to be okay for town long. True. And, you know, so out of those two terrible events, uh, obviously. You have two positive things come out of that. And it's also things that now everyone everyone is aware of an Amber Alert. You just yes. know what it is. Your phone. Think about it. I remember sometimes it happening in class, or every and every kid's phone is going off at the same time. Yeah, you get the Amber Alerts. You see them when you're driving on the highway. They have them on those digital boards. The Amber Alerts. Yeah. Look for this car. Look for that car. Um, things of that nature. And same thing with the with the town wall. Now that's that's totally changed. Where you have. The child proof. It's more to, it's really, you think it's child proof. That's not really what it's there for. It's to make sure no one tamper. It's not child proof. It's tamper proof. Yes. So they say if this seal is broken, get rid of it. Um, you know, I'm going back to that one a little bit. Yeah. With the Ember case, it's definitely one of those ones that unfortunately will probably never be, it's never going to be solved. Yeah. It's, it's just not. There's just not, there's no, not enough evidence. There's just no way they're going to be able to. Put anyone, even if someone comes forward and says it, but you have that too. You have that with every case. You have individuals saying, oh, I'm the one that did it. I'm the one, because they just want that publicity. But like you have with um, John Bonet Ramsey, that's another one we can do. Actually, I don't want to do that one anytime soon. But Yeah, no. And that's that's another thing. I kind of just didn't want to go there. And we definitely have to pick a happier podcast. We, we should talk about like Hershey or something. <laughs> Chocolate. We, got... well, we, we did cereal. We did cereal, right? Uh, maybe we should, maybe we should do the chocolate. We'll, we'll we'll ponder. We'll ponder. Usually, what happens is uh, <laughs> we change our mind ten times by the time we record this every week. So usually, okay. So uh, a few things before we get going. Uh, one, just in case you guys have not yet been following us on Twitter and or Facebook, um, you could always visit us on our website, which is historyteacherstalkingpodcast.com. All right, guys, thank you so much for listening, and uh, I hope you enjoyed it, and we will see you guys next week. Take it easy. Stay safe, everybody. Take it easy. I hope everyone enjoyed our podcast, and if you would like to email us, you can do so at historyteacherspodcast at gmail.com. Hello, my name is Peter Zablocki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little-known and hidden gems of history. In each bite-sized episode, I'll dive into my original research to bring you intriguing historical curiosities you've probably never heard of, uncovering the fascinating stories that have shaped our world, from forgotten figures to overlooked events. And the best part? I've condensed all this historical goodness into manageable chunks, perfect for your on-the-go lifestyle. Whether you're commuting to work or squeezing in a quick break, History Shorts fits into the little time you probably think you don't have. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts Podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts.